0: This episode of the podcast is brought to you by Mento LLC. Mento LLC Trade Consulting focuses on issues of duty minimization, recovery, and elimination, while also helping our clients with trade compliance issues of both the import and export nature and global cargo security. You can reach us at 978-317-3250 or email me directly at pete.mento at Mento llc. From Washington, D.C., this is Trade Geek Podcast with your host, Pete Mento. It is 11 o'clock on Tuesday, the 24th of November, and it is I, Pete Mento, your Trade Geek, and this is the Trade Geek Podcast, the last one before the beginning of the dreaded holiday season. Egads, it's upon us. I just stopped by my local Whole Foods to get my pickup. I normally have them deliver, but you see, everyone else is hip to that now. And I wouldn't be able to get my turkey in time. I got a feeling that that's going to be the underlying feeling for the entirety of this holiday season. Can't always get what you want. But you find sometimes you get what you need, right? Maybe we don't need to go whole crazy this year. There's nuts of things have been. But for those of us that work in this industry... People wanting to go crazy is an important part of how we pay our bills. And let's be honest. If it wasn't for the holiday rush and it wasn't for the back-to-school rush, and if it wasn't, for <laughs> we, we would be out of jobs. Consumption is good. It keeps people buying things from overseas they don't necessarily need. and That keeps us employed. I have never actually been an importer and I, I've kind of come to grips with that lately, you know, like I've never been the guy that, that had to actually deal with all of the things that I advise on. I advise people on how to do it. I tell them how to manage things. I mean, I, I leverage relationships to make it easy on them when they have a problem. It's worked out pretty well. But I've never had to do it. And I have a lot of respect for people who do. A lot of folks that uh, listen to this podcast and the people that I've on, had on it, you don't work in the retail side of things. And I'll tell you right now, it sucks. The idea of a living hell to most customs house brokers is having to classify footwear and handbags and clothing. It's hard. And if you don't believe me, just go on the Cross website and take a look at how many different um, times people have done binding ruling requests for that particular region area of the, of the tariff because we just can't get folks to agree with us. Egads. Well, we're lucky today that we have my good friend Sarah Bauer socks on. She's with Keen now. Has a heck of an interesting background. And um, I love talking to her. One of the reasons I love talking to her is she has managed to carve out a niche for herself in managing to classify deal with the compliance of the duty minimization of the expedient entry of footwear. Just saying footwear to a Customs House broker Usually makes the hair on the back of our neck stand up. Yeah, it's, um, it's an ugly, ugly industry, but she's fantastic at it. And uh, we had a heck of a great conversation. But as I'm looking at the state of the world right now, I worry about retail. We were just told in Pennsylvania and actually a few other states, the Wednesday night before Thanksgiving, there'll be no alcohol sales whatsoever. In public venues, that means no bars, no restaurants, and they'll stop selling liquor, beer, and wine at grocery stores and liquor stores early. I believe on Wednesday morning, at the uh, like twelve o'clock or so, and the idea being that it's going to keep young people from congregating, spreading the virus to each other, and then, you know, giving it to grandma. I don't. I mean, I don't know if 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 everybody wants to keep grandma alive. She's she's pretty ornery, you know. I mean, at least mine used to bring the good liquor over to the house. But you shouldn't be in your 90s driving. Anyway, here or there, with those sorts of restrictions, there's no way we're going to have Black Friday shopping. And if you don't want young people going out to bars and congregating, you shouldn't want people out in retail establishments, right? It's just, uh, it all went nuts. But lucky for you, you can get the same feeling, I suppose, doing your online shopping. Maybe Cyber Monday will just be crazy. I kind of hope it is. But as we begin to watch this holiday unfold, I think you're going to find more holidays are going to be like this one. Where the purchases will happen just as quickly. I think that they will certainly be just as expensive and people certainly spend the money. What's going to be frustrating is getting that thing home before the holidays. We are literally a month away from Christmas Eve. A month away from Christmas Eve. Most Americans haven't bought what they're going to buy for people yet for Christmas. They usually wait two weeks until then because most Americans need to get the money to do it. How is our logistics infrastructure going to do between then and now? In that two-week period. Or will Americans realize that they have to do stuff earlier? Eh, not really a preventative culture here. Well, I can't wait to see, and I'm looking forward to finding out. But I can't tell you this much. The lady we have today on the podcast knows a lot more about this stuff than I do. And with that, my conversation with Sarah Bowersox, the queen of footwear. Welcome, everybody, to the Trade Geek Podcast, and I am joined today by a great friend. I don't say old friend anymore because it makes us all feel ancient when I bring up how long we've all known each other. But joining me today is uh, Sarah Bowersox, who we were just talking about how her last name is a, um, a total mangling of the original German, but that's for another conversation, Sarah. Sarah is now with Keen Footwear, and I really wanted her to come on today for a couple of reasons. First of all, because I always enjoy talking to her. She is a font of knowledge of all things compliance. And we do have a fun time talking. And then second of all, yes, you've had a fascinating career and you've worked for some of my favorite brands and um, somehow managed to keep doing it without jumping off of a cliff. So bless you. You were kind enough today to wake up in the middle of the night, in my opinion, because what is it there? Seven o'clock? It's
1: seven. This is normal for me. Are you kidding?
0: Okay, yeah. it's seven o'clock uh, <laughs> from Portland, Oregon to have a chat with me. So Sarah, thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Thank you. I'm happy so, to do so.
0: Thanks. So just because I, I love the stories, tell everybody how your wacky education led to a wacky career in this wacky business.
1: <laughs> well, I guess I have a wacky education. Um, I went to college and when I did that, I was not able to register for the courses that I wanted to register for Um, in high school. I had studied Spanish for whatever, six years, middle school and high school, and I knew I wanted to keep taking Spanish, um, but the um, biology classes that I intended to register for were full, so I ended up taking Japanese. And that really changed the course of my interest and in studies. And so I ended up—I um, have a totally useless degree, <laughs> and that degree is—I uh, have a bachelor of arts in foreign languages. I studied three languages: um, Spanish, Japanese, and Russian. So I have—you uh, know—one that uses Cyrillic, one that uses characters, one that uses Roman letters, a Latin language, an Asian language, and a Slavic language. Um, which you would think would be super, super useful, um, but in reality, no. (laughs) (laughs) And so with having that background, the first job I took out of college um, was with a um, Japanese company that was actually a travel company. Now, it wasn't a travel agency in the traditional sense of the word. They did corporate travel. So they worked with all the large Japanese companies that have presences here in Oregon, and they did wholesale ticket sales, you know, for corporate travel. So like when you have a whole bunch of people and they're going to events, you you can get like group rates on airlines. So I did that for a couple of years. And in the course of doing that, I met um, some gentlemen um, from Japan who were going to open a branch of a freight forwarder um, in Portland that was a hybrid. So it was called the UPS Yamato Partnership. Um, It was part of Yamato Transport of Japan, which is a very long-established logistics company in Japan, and UPS, and it was going to specialize in the U.S.-Japan market. Um, So I, I left travel, and I went to work for them in freight forwarding with zero training, totally learned on the fly how to do all the freight forwarding stuff. Took a lot of classes, basically everything that I could get my hands on in the Portland area, which is quite a lot because we have a lot of trade geeks here and a lot of folks who are willing to share their knowledge. So I was able to get quite a lot of training. Did that, got interested in brokerage, um, studied for the brokerage exam without having ever worked for a customs broker or filed an entry. And um, I did pass the exam the first time I took it, which was... Historically, if you want to look get in your Wayback Machine, it was the first customs exam to include NAFTA. Ah. <laughs> and um, I this is back in the day, you know, no tests online, anything like that. It was the old style where you go in and you actually fill in the what? the dots. Um, <laughs> you Same sit here. in a room with you sit in a room with the customs inspectors looking at <laughs> <out> the <laughs> um, so I I passed the test the first time, but I always tell people that, you know, that sounds really impressive, but um, I actually did not pass. You know, I got the notice that said I had missed by one question. Um, So I did the protest um, where I picked three questions and I protested them. And I think they were all pretty good cases because they were poorly written questions, but um, they gave me one and I passed. And I was not happy with that because I've always been a good student and you know, like that, whatever it is, you need 75% of them. I'm like, that's crap. Like, you know, mm. I, I don't want that. I don't want an A. Um, <laughs> but then I found out that that particular exam, because it was the first one after NAFTA, I believe, and someone is going to have to fact check me on this. I believe it had like a 2% pass rate <laughs> or something nuts like that. Um, so, so I passed my customs exam. I was a young person. I, was, I think I was 24 because I remember going in to get my background check done. And you know, you have to go in and you get interviewed by the FBI and you bring in your fingerprints. And it was taken forever to do my background check, just like forever, like four months, five months, whatever, which was a big backlog back then. I know now that's pretty typical. But um, I called the guy back and I was like, look, I'm only 24. How much trouble could I have gotten in by now? And he was like, oh, you would be surprised. <laughs> We check you out. Um, so, so I ended up doing that. And then I, uh, with the freight forwarder that I was at, I didn't have an opportunity to interact in the brokerage world at all. So I moved to um, a customs broker, um, a strong regional um, team that's based that has offices here in Portland. And I was there for a couple of years. Um, and unfortunately, I didn't get to do a lot of brokerage. I had the background, you know, which was helpful, but they already had a good team in place for that. Um, what they really needed me to do was um, they needed someone who could speak Japanese because they had a, a partner that they worked with, um, basically, you know, a agency agreement that they had in place in Japan that supported them there and did a really great job. But their billing was a mess. It was just because nobody understood what was going on. There were statements going back and forth. There were language difficulties. So within a couple of weeks, I just was like, well, I can take care of this, pick up the phone. Call these guys and say, hey, what's going on with this? You know, why aren't you understanding? And found out that they have a totally different, um, you know, their invoices were doing 30, ours were doing 90. There was just massive miscommunication and basically ironed out a huge accounts payable problem. (laughs) You're a hero. Yeah. And, and took care of that. So I ended up just kind of owning that agency agreement for them, which did really help with that business lane and really kind of expanded it and made it so that things just work smoother, you know, with, with stuff going to Japan. And if we needed them to do something extra, we had somebody who could explain it to them and say, Hey, with this one, we want you to do a door delivery, but we want you to do it in a pink truck. You know,
0: (laughs) Did you actually have to that ask for that? It
1: really But, but oh, that's okay. the kind of thing that, you know, you need to have that kind of distinction and somebody yeah. to reach out.
0: Well, here's the so thing. That, I would have believed you if you would have said yes, Sarah. It so.
1: could happen. Yeah, totally. In Japan. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, so there I was working in customs brokerage and um, kind of not getting to do what I wanted, being a little more involved on sort of the business development side than on the, um, you know, operational side, which is really where I, which is really where I prefer to be. So um, I just started looking, I started looking at, you know, jobs that I could do in the Portland area. Um, And because I was working primarily in air freight, most of our customers were in the high tech world. Um, You know, a lot of folks that a lot of names that you know, well, Tektronix, Intel, um, you know, all those guys were our clients. And I had great working relationships with them. Um, And I thought, well, that would be kind of an easy move. But the fact of the matter is, in my soul, I am a Luddite. I am not all about high tech. And I was like, how am I going to classify and do export <laughs> licenses for things that I don't really know what they do? I mean, I know, obviously, there's super smart engineers who are there to help you and, you know, make sure you understand stuff. But I just felt like it I needs, needs to be something that I can really understand. Like, I know how it works. I, I get it. And um, again, this is still back in the day before we had, you know, online anything, I was looking at the Sunday paper and I saw that the Dr. Martin's company was looking for somebody in their traffic and logistics department. And I applied for the job and they hired me. And I was very surprised that they hired me because I was way overqualified for what they were hiring for Um, But I immediately just dived in when I went to work and I was like, show me all the brokerage stuff, like (laughs) you with the 7501s, you know, (laughs) I'm going to start looking at this stuff. I'm going to figure it out. So while I was doing mostly transportation type stuff, I really just started diving into that world and like really working closely with the broker and, and also just doing a lot of, you know, coming to grips with what was going on in that space because nobody with a background had been there looking at it. So they didn't know. You know was the broker doing what they told them to do because you know nobody was auditing yeah <laughs> we were just kind of digging into it and that's that's how i got into footwear and the reason i got into footwear is when i saw that out it was like i love shoes i've always been a shoe person i mean <laughs> even before i worked in footwear i had a closet just for shoes um and I, you know i was like this is something i can understand i i don't necessarily know how the footwear tariff works i remember after my first job interview Going home and flipping open, you know, chapter 64 from the giant book I had based on my studying for the broker's exam. And I was like, wow, what the hell is boxing? Right. (laughs) (laughs) I had to go look all this stuff up and really learn about it, um, you know, kind of before I started working and then in the early days. And the blessing really of starting my career at Dr. Martin's at that time. So this is Dr. Martin's in 1997. So that brand was on fire right but from a compliance standpoint from it was a fairly simple setup at when i started so when i started production was in the uk exclusively it was coming to the us it was almost all leather upper goodyear welted footwear which is pretty much the lowest duty rate you can get um for footwear. There's a few exceptions, but it, it was really a very favorable and easy learning environment where we only used, I remember at one time counting that we used like fewer than 12 tariff codes uh, for all the footwear we were bringing in because it was fairly standard. And then, you know, we really started to diversify more and things got a little nuts, but it was sort of a gentle introduction. And, you know, people say, oh God, footwear is so crazy. I'm like, well, not if you pick the right brand, right? Like if, I just got lucky because I came into somebody that had a simple supply chain. They had really great products, but they had a fairly finite product range. So I didn't have to go crazy all over the tariff. I could start really in one section and expand from there. And that's what started me in footwear. And then it just got nuts from there.
0: Well, I met you when you were at Doc Martin and I was so fired up because I, I mean, my dad, um, bought me a pair back on a trip. Um, and he was like, what do you want back from the U.K.? And I said, I want my own Docs. Because finding them when I was a teenager, when we were teenagers, that was very hard to do. You know, there yeah. were places down in the village that would have them in New York. And Newbury Comics had them in Boston. But it was it was hard to find them. And I remember having a pair of, of uh, I forget how many eyelets it was. But I had a pair of Doc Martin boots. And that just gave you instant street cred as a punker and a skater in the 80s. Like, you suddenly, yeah. you know, and then you had to beat Absolutely. them up you know they had to get a little bit uh trashed in order for you to be completely taken seriously but you weren't at doc martens forever before you came to keen there was a, there was a step in between there
1: Yeah. so i was yeah. at doc martens for a long time now yes, i was were. there for 14 years yeah which is a good long stretch and you saw um, them grow
0: i mean that and change oh them. yeah
1: yeah i mean we moved production so production moved from from England to Asia. Now it's kind of back and in both places, so it's it's kind of crazy. Um, they we moved warehouses. You know, we went through a million management changes and you know shapes and just a whole bunch of stuff went on. Um, I had two babies. <laughs> we had a customs audit. We joined CTPAT. There was there was a lot going on, um, so it was it was really busy. So um, I I did leave Doc Martens though, and I went to um, Nike for about three years, and. The best thing about being at Nike is was the contrast because I went from being a one woman show um, with a little bit of help uh, to being part of a large team that was just focused on US Customs. So I worked within the US Customs team. Nike also has a global customs group. And um, my focus was in the compliance space. So I didn't classify when I was there. I was really looking at um, you know, the end product. So looking at, you know, sort of broker performance and, you know, auditing. I also um, got to uh, do the ISA annual reporting. um, And I also was part of the C um, pilot, the C launch when, when that was going on. So I got to do a lot of stuff, but it was more focused on sort of the customs relationship piece and you know post entry and broker performance and then also special projects so i did stuff like repair and return and um, assist declarations and um, a couple of drawback claims we had to do a destruction drawback claim at one point Mm. because we had some woefully inadequate apparel that needed to go through (laughs) the printer because it just did not cut the mustard So, um, you know, kind of unique projects and stuff like that, but um, I wasn't able to, in the time period that I was there, I wasn't able to get a lot of traction to go on to something that would have me doing more. Um, And I think that's kind of a function of Nike. And and I talk about this a lot because even though Nike is the shortest blip on my resume, it's the thing I get the most questions about because, you know, everybody loves Nike. They want to They want to work there or they think they want to work there and they want to ask you questions about it and what I always tell people is you know I have folks because I went to college here in town in Portland I have folks that I went to college with that went to work for Nike and are still there so they walked out of the door 1990 when we graduated they went right to Nike and they're still there and they you know have had really strong and interesting careers I also have known a number of people who went to Nike sort of not at the end of their career but sort of at the on the developed side of their career and they went in as directors or senior directors and above and um, have had really great luck. I kind of went in in the middle in there and Nike doesn't have a lot of appreciation of what you bring from outside unless it's a very specific skill that they're looking for at that time so I just kind of I didn't feel like I had any cachet there so and I wanted to do other things and I thought if I stay here I'm going to keep doing these things that I'm doing, which are interesting enough, but it's probably not going to change that much. Yeah, it's
0: limiting to some degree. Exactly.
1: And when I looked yeah. at it, I was like, am I going to be happy with that in the long term? And and I decided no. Um, so I came over here to Keen Footwear. And um, the amazing thing about all three of these things, though, is I've never left Portland. <laughs> so, I mean... I didn't grow up here. I grew up in Seattle, so I did move a little bit south. Um, but I came down here to go to school, and I have been here ever since. And I have had a very, very interesting run in the world of footwear without ever leaving.
0: And successful, the, the and Portland. I would imagine lucrative and fascinating and challenging. What, what was it about Keen that, that you said, this is the kind of company for me?
1: Well, when I looked at Keen, um, they were... So they are a very young company, um, and when I went and talked to the folks that I knew that worked there, what I really liked about it was that I could see the ceiling. There wasn't a lot going on on the top, right? There was basically this people doing the work. There were a few bosses. We have an owner, so we're a privately held company, but you could just you could just see the top. It, was, it wasn't like Nike where you go through the, you know, they have their Nike matrix, and you know, it's a lot lighter now because they just had a big round of layoffs, but... Mm-hmm. But <laughs> there's a lot of people up there and you kind of have to fight your way through. With this, it was like, okay, there's like a couple hundred people in the company and, you know, you know half of them are, you know, I'm kind of in the middle and some of them are up here and some of them are down there. I just felt like there was really good visibility to what was going on. Um, and the other thing was that um, it, it was a different type of shoe. So Doc Martens is a heritage brand. Um, Nike is a premium athletic brand. Keen is an outdoor brand. It's a, total, it's a totally different mindset. So it's different kinds of shoes. Um, it was also nice to come back to some place that made workwear because, as you know, Dr. Martens also makes workwear. Um, Keen makes really fabulous work and safety footwear. So kind of getting back into that ethos of, you know, shoes that not only look great, feel great, but actually keep people safe. Yeah. That that's kind of a fun thing to be involved in, and you know, just the whole outdoor ethos. Um, so it was an evolution. So my closing career path, and I tell people this all the time, next step, it's haute couture, baby, you know, I, <laughs> I, I got, I got it closed with fashion, right? Yeah. Unfortunately, I, you know, I have, I have a lot of good friends in footwear, my really good friend, Sandy, uh, that works for Camuto group. She's like, you're going to have to move to New York,
0: Yep. New York or <laughs> Paris or LA or At Hong that Kong. Maybe yeah. Is
1: not happening. Well, yeah. at least well, I've got, you know, kids in school and stuff, but you know, once I got <laughs> these kids out of the house, then, you know, whatever. My how husband it, loves New York.
0: <laughs> oh, I, well, I could see you more often. How, how, does, how does a woman who, who speaks Japanese not end up working for Sony or, or, or Toyota or Honda in a very senior role in compliance? I, I, I think it's, that's fascinating.
1: It, it, it's really that path. It's that junction where I was like, I want to work with a product that... I intrinsically understand and that really that speaks to my soul right I'm, I'm not a person that goes crazy about a big tv you yeah know?
0: But Sarah I'm, I'm racking my brain right now I know a lot of compliance professionals who speak Chinese who speak Spanish
1: mm.
0: French right I don't know another one that's of your seniority that actually speaks Japanese that's fascinating
1: yeah there's a few of us out here definitely I mean I I think maybe it's more common in the Pacific Northwest because we have a lot of folks who, um, you know, who study Japanese. We also just have a lot of Japanese people here. Americans, so yeah. the opportunity, you know, to meet folks like that and become interested in that and think, wow, maybe that's something I want to learn is, is a little, is a little higher, I think. Yeah.
0: Well, I'm, I'm, I'm running out of time. So I have two things I wanted to make sure I got out of the way. The first is we have a, a lot of young people a lot of young professionals who listen to this so thousands and the the ones that listen are always asking me in emails and on linkedin for career advice and one of the things i always tell them is for the love of god don't go into footwear um so uh, is there is there something about that particular niche that you love
1: um I, I do like footwear and I think the thing that I like about it is that I like the complexity
0: It's so, just so hard Sarah
1: yeah if you like puzzles um, if you like having smoke come out of your ears um, <laughs> it's definitely it's definitely the way to go I mean the the classification aspect just the you know the tariff determination part is definitely challenging and it also um, offers you some freedom in that a lot of the footwear classification rules are completely arbitrary. They don't yeah. make sense. They're just there. And once you sort of embrace that and you, you know, you teach in my case, you know, the developers and the engineers and the designers that are working with you that this is the rule, it doesn't make sense, just address <laughs> it and move on. That logic
0: fly out the window.
1: Logic fly out the window. Yeah. And and that actually, once you get over those things, it really does kind of simplify the process a little bit. And even to this day, so I always joke that the only chapter of the tariff I have memorized is chapter 64. And I don't think I actually have it memorized, but it's one of those things where I will look at a shoe and the tariff code will pop into my head. Like yeah. if I'm shopping and I look at a shoe, it's like, you know, it just pops right up. But if I think about it at all, I always doubt myself. And the reason that I do is because it is very complicated. Mm -hmm. And I know that if I go back and I look at that and I open up all my tools and I start going down rabbit holes, that for any given shoe, I can probably come up with two or three different places where it probably could live in the tariff. And then you have to pick the best one. But other than that, why footwear? Um, Footwear is great because it is, like I said, it's so complex. You don't just have challenging classification. Footwear is known for issues with valuation. Um, you know, assists are our biggest boondoggle. We're always dealing with them. And I get I like, get
0: heartburn just thinking about it.
1: Yeah, if you like to have lots of detailed conversations with import <laughs> specialists about why they're going down the wrong hole, um, this is this is the this is the industry to do it in. <laughs> and yeah. also, I have to say, the footwear industry as a whole, especially on the trade wall side, we're very supportive of each other. Very. Um, very. We teach each other. Um, I'm on constant chat groups, email groups, um, you know, LinkedIn groups with all of my footwear friends all over the country. We are not shy about asking each other questions. If and there's also, you don't know,
0: there's also we FDRA, just, we should yeah, mention
1: that. FDRA. Absolutely. So there's great organizations and just the people in those organizations are generally willing to help. Um, I remember being at ICPA and meeting a gentleman that um, he was brand new to footwear, very highly qualified guy and just telling him ask me any questions you have and you know and then spending you know a couple of hours (laughs) with him on different phone calls over the next few weeks you know to make sure he got off on the right foot and people are willing to do that so
0: is it i feel that's a very cool thing about our business is there's not a lot of jerks i mean there are but those of us that are are in this business the, the geekery of trade compliance we tend to take pretty good care of one another. Yeah, I think Where so. If if you're if you're cool about it and you're and you and you come humbly to ask a question of someone who's done it for a long time, I don't think I've ever told anybody no. Yeah. no. I let them know so, if they're becoming a nuisance, but you know, you I've never told to. them no
1: we all have to rally together to deal with things like regulatory changes, you know, that either get thrown at us or we're trying to shape that, you know, through, through lobbying activities. So, you know, we have to, you know, combine forces. That that.
0: brings me to the other question I wanted to ask you before I get to my three questions. And that's uh, you've been around, like you said, from the beginning of the centers of excellence, the C for footwear. Mm -hmm. And when I talk to folks on different C's, I get different reactions about the effectiveness and how happy they are with them. Then you seem to be somebody who's I mean, you've been there from the beginning. You seem happy or not I don't know about happy, but you seem uh, what's the word I'm yeah. looking for? Uh happy I go happy. Are you happy Content. with the footwork see? Content, yeah.
1: I've gone on both sides. First of all, I have to say that the footwear C, the individuals who are actually involved in the C, you know, leader Eric Batt and his team are great people and they're always receptive and willing to listen and contribute, which you can't argue with that. Right. The one argument I would have is that when I was at Nike and we were part of that pilot, we did notice that we joined the C and suddenly we saw more um questions back from customs and instead of less and it's supposed to be this kind of like handshake agreement where you're like yes you've proven to us that you know what you're doing we're going to leave you alone on this stuff we actually saw more um and then of course we had some cachet because we were part of that pilot so we went back and talked to them and it kind of mellowed out um and then when i left keen the long-standing joke i have with the industry is that every time the uh, footwear and apparel and textile C hires a new matrix emplo- employee, I at Keen get a 28. Huh. And the reason is because as a part of how they work, if they're if you're new to footwear and you come into the C, they encourage you to ask importer questions. And um, sometimes they're informal, you know, just like an email on an entry or on some post entry, but oftentimes they're formal. And at one point, I got two 28s on the exact same issue from different C matrix employees within a 30-day period. So what so is it, Stump I, the
0: Chump? Sarah's Stump the Chump, you're the...
1: Yeah, it was really strange. So I just got back to, and, and to a credit to, like I said, how great the people are and what a good job they do, I responded to the second one by saying, you know, I just answered this. Here's the entry number. I sent it to this person. You know, can you please go back and turn their <clears> And, you know, and this new import specialist did just that. And they're like, oh, yeah, you're right. You're fully no, just qualified a, for this GSP program. You're good.
0: A, a quick point to everyone listening. Don't think you can get away with that. Um, that's something I think only Sarah gets away with. Just, don't just randomly send a response back to custom saying, hey, go talk to the other guy. All right. that's. Uh, <laughs> I think that's something only you get away with. All right. I, every Every podcast ends with the same three questions and uh they have nothing to do so it's these are three questions that have nothing to do with compliance so are you ready i'm ready okay question number one what was the uh, first car you ever had and what happened to it
1: okay so the first car i ever had was a 1965 ford fairlane
0: oh man you're the second person who's had one of those Fans. <laughs> oh man
1: um, and where that car came from is it belonged to my grandparents who sold it to my parents for a dollar because, <laughs> and this was a long time ago, you know, like way before I could drive um, because they needed an extra car and, you know, they didn't want to go buy one. And my grandfather was like, oh, just take this one. And so they drove it out from South Dakota. My mom handed them a buck and put them on the train, and they went back home.
0: Um, wow! So that
1: was my first car. I once got seventeen people into that car.
0: <laughs> what happened to it?
1: Well, unfortunately, my mom was driving it, and somebody crashed into one of the doors. Oh. And so she replaced the door. She but she went to the junkyard, so it was white with a red interior, but it had one blue door because. He replaced the door because she was like, well, you know, I'm not going to like do body work on it. This is ridiculous. Um, and then eventually we actually um, gave it to somebody who was, um, my dad was a medical doctor and he had a gal who had worked for him who was doing home health care. And she had to haul a lot of stuff around with her, you know, like wheelchairs and stuff like that. She needed a car with a big trunk, but she had a small area that she worked in. And he was like, well this is a really old car and I don't know how long it's going to last, but it would be great for you to be able to haul this stuff around in. And um, you know, it's safe because you know, it's, it's my a tank. Daughter's driven it. yeah, it's yeah. A tank. But we ended up giving it to her and I know that she drove it for like five or six years, well into the nineties. And um, wow. I think it finally died a graceful death. I really hope she just put it in her garden and made a planter out of it. But. <laughs>
0: That's an awesome first car. All right. Question number two. First job that you remember you ever had where you got paid an actual paycheck. Nothing like under the table babysitting.
1: Yeah, I did a lot of babysitting. But um, my first real job was um, I worked at the View Ridge Swim and Tennis Club, which is uh, part of a country club that's close by. Um, I I was a lifeguard. I was a swimming coach. And I also taught really little kids swimming lessons, like really little kids, like the ones that their very first swimming lessons, flow bubbles, learn how to float on your back, that type of stuff. So I did that for three summers. and That was my summer job. And that was was the first job where I had a a real paycheck. What did you get paid? You know what, I don't remember. I think I might have topped out somewhere around like $6 an hour.
0: (laughs) Yeah, here, take my baby, um, put it in the water with you, and let me give you minimum wage for that. That seems yeah. like a really smart idea. Okay, yeah, last it was question. A good job
1: though, because oh, I, I mean, it was every every time I watch Caddyshack, I get nostalgic <laughs> because you know it was this big, was this big club, and you know the employees had to park way up in the back. So mm. if you were lucky, and I had to be there really early in the morning to start swimming practice, that like swim practice started at like six thirty in the morning in the summer is insane. So I was there at six o'clock. Caddies were there because people come to golf before oh, yeah. work. So if I was lucky, I'd get a ride down to the clubhouse in the golf cart and I didn't have to like hoof it because I would have you to park said. and walk like a mile down there.
0: You are not Bushwood material. Last <laughs> question. And then, and then uh, I will let you get back to work. And this is one of my favorites. If you could do any job and the rules of the universe didn't apply, I could make you a seven foot tall center uh, for the Chicago Bulls. I could... <laughs> I I, you could you could be a ninja whatever okay you could be the queen of England it doesn't matter if if Uncle Pete had a magic wand and I could make you whatever you wanted to be for a career other than the one you have now in compliance and logistics what would that career be
1: well I have um, on my LinkedIn description I have that I'm a footwear I'm a trade compliance expert a footwear serial monogamist because I've (laughs) gone along these Mm -hmm. different brands and then i list my superpowers and my superpowers are first of all extreme thrift so i'm a big thrifter i hardly ever buy anything new and stain removal so stain (laughs) removal kind of goes with the extreme thrift like i'll find like a gorgeous cashmere sweater and it's got like Mm -hmm. a stain on it and i'll be like yeah i'll buy that for two bucks because i can get that stain out and it'll either make an amazing gift for somebody or I, you know, I resell it through consignment stores. So honestly, if I wasn't, if I didn't have this full-time job, I would probably do that full-time because the the thing I love about it is it's green, it's recycling, right? You're not, you know, you're using something that's already there. Mm-hmm. You have to use your wits, you know, like stain removal and can I fix this? And, you know, can I redo this buttonhole? Can I put this leather strap back on? Um, I've like put shoes back together. I mean, I've, <laughs> cause I enjoy that kind of hands-on problem solving. Um, and then I also like making something that was unloved, loved again. Mm. And that's why I really enjoy finding things that are of tremendous values and unique and interesting things and then giving them as gifts. And um, the biggest validation I've gotten is that from friends of mine who are like, they're like, we love getting a present from you because we never know what it's going to be. Like, it could be something that's 50 years old, you know, that you just reach out that speaks to you about me for some reason. And then you put this like sweat equity into it. And so, you know, it's a really meaningful thing. So if I, I know there's a way to monetize that because I, like I said, I go to thrift stores all the time and I see people there who are just looking for stuff they can flip on you know, eBay or Poshmark or, or whatever, yeah. I'm not about the, like, the money-making part of it, I'm about the making something unloved, loved. Um, but if I, could, if I could do that, and um, oh, it's probably my retirement gig.
0: Saving, uh, <laughs> saving things from the island of misfit toys.
1: Exactly. You, uh,
0: you've made this a wonderfully easy 40-minute conversation, and Ooh. I always love talking with you, and I've always loved working with you, and you are a joy. And uh, I continue, I hope nothing but continued success for you. And I know that unfortunately, you're probably going to get emails and LinkedIn requests for help with footwear because I gave you a platform, (laughs) but thank you, Sarah, for coming on with us today. Yeah, yeah, there you go. Thanks for coming on with us. And uh, hopefully I'll get to talk to you again soon. Thanks so much. All
1: right. Thanks.
0: Thanks, Sarah. Bye-bye.